welcome back to Help, I'm Going to a Dinner Party, the podcast that helps socially awkward millennials engage in meaningful discussions without the use of snarky internet memes. I'm Molly Iden, your host. Today we will be tackling current events. One particular event, actually, the conflict in Syria. This is a subject that is discussed quite often. You hear about it on the news, on the internet, social media, the radio. Everyone has something to say about what's going on in the Middle East. But with so much noise, sometimes it's hard to truly identify the key actors and the pivotal events that have molded the Syrian civil war into what we see today. It's important to have the timeline straight before diving into such a hot topic with friends over coffee. Like I mentioned before, talk of the Syrian civil war is everywhere. And it's not just a subject that you can avoid forever. So, it's better to be informed, to better engage in the conversation, rather than just sit in the shadows and listen to other people have the conversation. Let's start by identifying the key actors in the conflict. This is important because there are so many hands in the pickle jar. We kind of need to understand who everyone is, what their motives in Syria are, and kind of what side, so to speak, they're on. There are about seven key players in this game, and many more have kind of popped in and out of the picture, but we'll just focus on the seven big ones right now. Number one is obviously the Assad regime. Bashar al-Assad has been Syria's leader since 2000. Before him, his father was in power. The Assad regime has been in Syria since basically the 1970s. And while Assad is technically the president of Syria, the most recent presidential election in 2014 was met with a lot of criticism, considering it was in the middle of the civil war. John Kerry, the Secretary of State at the time, went on record and said, you can't have an election where millions of your own people don't even have the ability to vote. So that kind of tells you the dynamic that the Assad regime has with the Syrian people. Number two is Russia. They have been Assad's biggest and best ally for a long time now. They've provided weapons and troops and more to the Assad regime through all of this conflict. Russia has been a presence during basically all of Syria's peace talks and their biggest diplomatic backing during any discussion with the UN. Russia is concerned with maintaining its military influence in the region, considering there's some Russian bases in um, the Syrian city of Tartus and other places around there. Number three is Iran. Iran is another ally to the Assad regime. Iran is also providing military power for the Assad regime. However, most of their fighters are coming from Hezbollah and other jihadist terrorist groups that were created in Iran and Lebanon. Iran wants to maintain strong relations with Syria in order to have another efficient way to transport weapons and goods and war to and from Iran to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Number four is Israel. As Israel is the only well-established democracy in the region, it's really threatened not only by the Assad regime, but also all the terrorist organizations that have infiltrated the warring nation. 
considering they share a border with Syria, it's important to them that the violence doesn't spread over into their land. They have been looking for the U.S. support um, in their counter-terrorism and counter-proliferation efforts. And that obviously brings us to number five, the United States. The U.S. involvement has been greatly dependent on the president. For instance, President Obama was concerned with policing Assad's use of chemical warfare on his own people, which got out, out of hand for a while there. America has also provided support to the SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces, which is a rebel group fighting against both the Assad regime and ISIS fighters in the area. On the other hand, you have President Trump, who has taken a different approach to Syria's conflict, and he kind of wishes to maintain a goal of exterminating ISIS rather than policing Assad's governing tactics. So he's kind of stepping back from Syria and their conflict. The UN is actor number six, and like we've mentioned before, they've worked um, to kind of sponsor and promote productive discussions of peace between all the actors of this conflict. Um, unfortunately, it's been to no avail. In fact, since 2016, the UN has hosted eight rounds of peace talks for Syria. And that following year, in 2017, Syria was the most popular topic for the Security Council, and it was mentioned 33 times during consultations. So it's been on the UN's mind. They're looking at it. They're reading into it. Unfortunately, they're just not very impactful right now. And lastly, we have Turkey and the Kurds. Both Turkey and Kurdish fighters are backing Syrian opposition in some form or another. However, Turkey's main concern is the rise in the amount of Kurdish fighters that are assisting rebel groups in Syria. Many of these Kurdish fighters are, perhaps loosely, but still related to the PKK, which is Kurdistan Workers' Party. Um, this is concerning for Turkey because all the conflicts that have been within Turkey's borders have been with this organization. And for those that might be unaware, the PKK has widely been regarded as a terrorist group because of kind of what they do and what they represent. All right, so now that we've kind of outlined the who's who of it all, let's go ahead and jump into the timeline of pivotal events that have created this entire conflict that we hear about so often. The United States Institute of Peace kind of lays out this timeline for us in five separate phases. And I think these phases are pretty decent. So back in 2011, in the spirit of Arab Spring, some Syrian miners decided to spray paint some anti-regime graffiti on a wall. They were taken into custody by officials and tortured. And this, of course, led to some peaceful protests because people are usually not happy when children are tortured. Um, and as time went on, the protests continued and it got more violent. And it kind of should be noted that the majority of the violence in the beginning is said to have come from Assad's regime rather than the protesters. Eventually, the protests kind of shifted from simply about the injustices of the juvenile's punishment 
toward the injustice, injustices of the entire regime in general. And this event and the series of protests immediately afterward is what is kind of considered to be the beginning of it all. So this is what the Institute of Peace considers phase one. Phase two marks the shift um, from just protesting into a full-scale civil war. During phase two, around 2012-2013, opposition or rebel groups began to solidify formation and seize many of the large cities um, in Syria, like Aleppo. Iran steps in to assist Assad by calling on Hezbollah and other various forms of Iran's armed forces. Um, at this point, Assad is now attempting to gain any sort of control over his country that he can, and in doing so, he launches unspeakable sarin attack, gas attacks on his own people in the city of Damascus. During this specific attack, more than 1,400 civilians died by the hand of Assad. In phase three, the tension continues to rise and more key actors are entered into the conflict. This is when ISIS first emerges as a major threat in Syria and the United States begins to get involved. In 2014, about one-third of Syrian territory was run by ISIS, and whatever territory was gained by moderate rebel forces in the earlier years was now overrun by terrorists. Considering America's position on terrorism, President Obama launches a series of airstrikes on the terrorist fighter groups. Phase 4 begins when Russia enters into the war. They start sending weapons and fighters and other sources of aid to the Syrian army in 2015. Um, during this time, they launch a series of airstrikes that they say are allegedly targeted toward Islamic State terrorists. However, the U.S. claims that they were actually targeting non-ISIS fighters and the moderate rebel forces in Syria instead to help Assad regain control. Eventually, ISIS and the other terrorist groups in Syria start to kind of fade out. And this is the most recent phase, phase 5, and it's still somewhat unsettling, mostly because Bashar al-Assad is still in power. However, ISIS has basically been exterminated in Syria. Assad has been able to take back most of the large cities, including Aleppo and Damascus in 2016 and 17, and most of the southwest Syria region by the end of 2018. This also marks a new phase of American involvement because President Trump announced at the end of 2018 that the U.S. will no longer provide boots on the ground in Syria. And earlier in this year, it was announced that the last ISIS territory in Syria was finally liberated with the help of U.S. Special Forces troops. Kind of left on the edge of phase five and we're kind of wondering what's going to happen next but before we get into that subject let's just do a quick run-through summary of the pivotal events just one more time all right here's the lightning quick summary of what's going down in syria syria is run by president bashar al-assad he unfortunately has not been the most loving leader to his people, which has caused a series of protests that escalated, mainly by the Syrian government, might I add, to a more violent civil war. After a successful beginning for the Syrian rebels, the civil war became more complicated as new players entered into the arena. Along came Iran and its radical jihadist fighters to give their support to Assad. 
Assad, grasping for any sort of control that he could muster, began a series of chemical attacks on his own people. The United States came to defend the Syrians from his own, their own leader and back Israel, their border neighbor, because they felt threatened by Syria's association with Iran and their association with Hezbollah. Jihadists and ISIS fighters began to gain momentum. They captured much of Syria's territory and actually eclipsed all of the successes that happened earlier by the moderate rebel forces. Russia, being a close ally of Assad's, jumps in to allegedly dilute the thick ISIS influence in Syria, but instead they were actually launching attacks on the moderate rebel groups backed by the U.S. and Kurdish fighters, which, by the way, is totally freaking Turkey out because Turkey and the PKK, a Kurdish terrorist group, have been warring for quite some time as well. All while this is happening, the UN is attempting to facilitate different peace talks and find solutions and give aid to the massive number of refugees, massive number of refugees that are fleeing their homeland of Syria. It's quite frankly a crisis. The United States and other moderate rebel fighters are able to basically exterminate ISIS from Syria and eventually Assad, thanks to the help from his buddies Iran and Russia, regains control of the major majority of his nation that was first captured by the moderate rebels. And then, of course, by ISIS and then back to Assad. As of right now, ISIS is no longer in Syria. The U.S. is packing its bags to get out of the country and Assad is back in power. But there are still tons of Syrian refugees that are displaced. So the question on everybody's mind is, what will the next phase of the Syrian conflict bring for the Syrian government, the refugees, the Syrian people, the Middle East, the world in general? This is where the conversation for you might get a little bit interesting. And if you're in the midst of this Syrian conflict conversation with another person, there are a series of questions that you could ask if they haven't been asked already. While there are probably a million questions and what ifs that we could ask, um, here are just a few that'll kind of help you direct your conversation. What do you think the long-term outcome for the Syrian war will be considering Bashar al-Assad remains in power? Do you think his resent toward his people will increase or vice versa? And how will that affect his governing style? Um, the relationships between the United States and Syria are already highly strained, as we've already talked about. So what do you think this means for any sort of future relations that U.S. will have with both Syria and their ally, Russia? Um, we've talked about how the Syrian war has kind of wrecked completely its society on all fronts, but it has made a toll especially on their economic system. So what steps do you think need to be taken in order to salvage the nation's economic system? Do you think that the type of governing leader will make a difference in the economic positions that the country should or will take in the future? And one step further, will Iran or Russia step in to help their ally in their economic crisis? 
And if that does happen, what sort of implications will that hold for the region or for the entire world, the global system? We've talked about how Syrian refugees are still scattered across the world. So obviously that is a big problem. What sort of international or domestic policies will Syria and the UN and whoever else consider in order to bring the Syrians back home? And lastly, what is America going to do? Considering the sanctions imposed, will they remain? Will they tighten? Will they loosen up now that Syria is no longer harboring ISIS? Um, And even though President Trump has already vowed to pull our troops out of the region, do you think that America should continue to provide support in the area? And if so, what do you think that support should be? Should it be boots on the ground? Or should it just be... Um, kind of a diplomatic backing that Russia had at the beginning of the Syrian war for Assad. Like I said, there are plenty of questions that we need to have answered. And who knows, maybe you'll be able to direct your conversation and find a solution together with the person that you're talking to. Um, But there are really a few different major factors that kind of determine or will determine the future of Syria and the region in general um, that also need to be discussed. The first question that I asked you to pose to your conversation companion was about the future of the Assad regime. And going back to why all of this began, we can see that there have been some serious injustices done before and during the conflict in Syria and with their powerful friend Putin backing them up. It raises a lot of questions. If Assad remains in power and continues to use his authority the way that he has, there's almost a guarantee that he will continue to be violent to his own civilians. If this is the case, the current refugee crisis may only worsen, and it also poses the threat of chemical warfare becoming a more what do you say, useful tool to Russia or its other allies. In other words, Putin has now seen firsthand how effective chemical weapons can be, and we don't necessarily want him to get any ideas. The other problem with the continuance of the Assad regime and Russia's influence is the impact that it'll have on the overall democracy in the region. Democracies like those in America and Europe and Israel have been attempting to show the people of that region how beautiful the benefits of democracy can be. However, soft power from afar is a lot harder to see if the hard power right in front of these people causes a much bigger boom, so to speak. We've also already kind of asked the question about what America is going to do next. And that really does matter, um, especially for us Americans. Um, And it kind of depends on the policies of the next president. As of right now, under President Trump, the United States is definitely withdrawing from the region. And if this plan continues, there are a few potential consequences that could come from a hasty exit. 
The first one is that all the weapons and supplies that we have provided and given to rebel forces like the SDF um, for the support for their cause over the years um, could get in the hands of the wrong people. If these weapons are left behind, they have the potential of ending up um, in the hands of Kurdish terrorists, other terrorist organizations, or even ISIS. And while Syria's ISIS pro problem has been contained, that doesn't mean that it can't take root again or it can pop up somewhere else in the Middle East. And what happens if they have better weapons and tactics this time around because they have information and knowledge from U.S. resources? Uh, if we pull out completely, I don't think the United States will be able to immediately uproot any new terrorist insurgencies that Syria might face, especially if they have our technology. Lastly, I think that a consequence would be how Russia and Iran will view America stepping back. Um, if they view it as weakness, they might try to gain more political or regional power in or around Syria. Um, and that could potentially have some big consequences. But with all of this, I mean, we also need to look at what the consequences will be if the Uni United States decides to stay. Um, and this is more for domestic policies and just our safety in general here in America. It is kind of hard to know for sure what will happen next in Syria um, or how the U.S. will react or how Russia or any of the other major actors can react to what's going on over there which is why it makes it such an interesting conversational subject. The entire conflict is so multifaceted that people are bound to have different perspectives or alternative solutions to um, the questions that I posed earlier. And even though the media seems to be slowing down on their coverage of the Syrian conflict, the issue is still present and still relevant and still affecting millions and millions of people. If you feel comfortable with those around you, I suggest that you try to bring up the Syrian civil war with them and see what sort of opinions they have on the subject. If they're unfamiliar with the history of the pivotal events, I mean, you now have a clear timeline to share with them. If they are well informed, um, the questions posed in this podcast should help you keep afloat in the conversation. Either way, I think that this podcast will be beneficial to you. With that being said, thank you so much for listening to Help, I'm going to a dinner party and taking the time to expand your knowledge on various subjects in order to better assist you when you're ready to engage in more in-depth social interactions. I hope that this episode in particular has been helpful to you. Please come back for another conversation subject suggestion that doesn't have to do with Kim Kardashian or a Netflix original series when you're ready to step out the door, put down your phone, and have a conversation over dinner with your peers and loved ones. 
I'm your host, Molly Ivan.